Hello, everyone, and welcome back for the next edition of the Sports Pro Stream Time Podcast. My name is Chris Stone. I'm the community lead at Sports Pro Media, joined as always by our CEO, Nick Meacham. And we also have a special guest today, our technology editor, Steve McCaskill. Now, I, I know for maybe some other people in our audience, you know, snow's not that big of a deal. But here in the UK, I can tell you, I got at least three inches where I'm at in London based on where, you know, taking the dog for a walk. And Nick, I know you're headed to Sweden here very soon, but I don't think you need to leave. You know, you got all the Scandinavian weather here. I couldn't believe when I woke up this morning and saw how much there was. I, th- I had to get the kids out out to, to school and instead was having to find clothes that were locked away in storage that we'd never, ever use. I don't think it's ever snowed this time of the year, this early in December, from at least since I've lived in the UK. So it was all a bit foreign for us, but I did dr- enjoy walking down to the nursery with my little two-year-old because I basically like, I drove the, the, the pram like a, a a rally car, basically, which was quite fun. Fun for me. She kept telling me to slow down, but it was fun for me at least, which is part of the fun of being in the snow. I have to ask a question because I'm sure it never happened to you in Australia growing up, Nick. But Steve, did you guys ever have snow days back like when you were a grade school kid? Because for me, it used to be almost when you're watching live sports, you know, Sky Sports, ESPN on the bottom line, it, you know, it has that rolling set of scores that keep changing every 10 seconds. Well, we used to have that for school closing. So we used to get up at like 5 a.m. and just pray and wait for the moment that Springboro School District closed came up. And you'd watch that roller, you know, just kind of go through all the schools that were closed for like an hour, just praying that your school, like, how did they announce those in the UK? Because it was definitely a thing for us growing up in the U.S. It was one of the rare times I think anyone really listened to a BBC local radio religiously. Uh, that's not to diminish local radio. I love the cricket, but it was essential listening when that happened. Well, I remember growing up, so I had the opposite. I had heat days. So Ooh. when it got to a certain temperature, they actually closed school down because it was too hot. I think it was something like, this is when I live in the desert, right? In the center of Australia, in the red dirt. So we didn't have grass, we had dirt. Uh, and I think it was 45 degrees or something like that. Uh, it was hot anyway, so hot. So I, I've, I've, I've seen heat days, haven't seen snow days for school yet. So, uh, that's the next thing on the agenda. Now I'm over here. Yeah. Well, like you said it was just, it, it's an interesting one. Cause now kids just get text messages and, you know, now I sound like that old guy that's screaming at the clouds or whatever, but, uh, it just made me think about that in the, the good old days. Well, the good thing is I'm in a great spot here where I look out my window and there's a T intersection in front of my house. And already this morning, I've seen one car beautifully slide into the corner trying to turn. I'm just waiting for the moment with all the ice in the road that we see a few little crashes on the and keep me excited uh, through this. So if you start seeing me or hearing me getting a bit excited in this uh, this podcast, it might be because someone's actually crashed a car rather than me uh, mm. getting excited about what we've said. But we'll see where we get to. Can I just say that you have both definitely become British with the amount of attention you're paying to the weather. <laughs> Oh gosh, I've, I've now spent more years here as an adult than I have in Australia. So uh, it's it's a frightening sign to say the least, but I think you might be onto something, Steve, sadly. Yeah, I'm not too far off. Well, anyways, we'll get into the meat and potatoes of what we want to really talk to you today about. And what we wanted to go through is basically frame for you what you missed if you weren't at the OTT Summit in Madrid uh, the other week with us. So Steve and Nick were both moderating multiple sessions as well as attending multiple sessions. I was on stage for a few of them. And basically, we wanted to kind of go through is a list of the different stories, things that we gathered across the OTT Summit to try to, you know, fill you in on some of the information, some of the stories, stats, details that you might have missed over uh, the three days while we were out in Madrid. So I think the first one I'm going to start off with here 
Oh, I think yeah. someone wants to interject because this is like the Sports Pro couch now. <laughs> well, the reason I want to jump in is before anyone turns off, because no, what some people might say is like, oh, an events recap, yawn. No, no, listen in. This is going to be good. I'm, ba- I'm backing us because we're going to talk specific stuff that we've heard on the ground, which you won't often get sight of or hear about through traditional news channels. So I think it's important. We're not just talking about takeaways, about holistic stuff here. We're talking about specific sound bites and information we heard around specific companies in the industry. So strap yourself in and listen in closely because there's some absolute nuggets coming your way. No pressure, no guys. Pre- I was going to say, no pressure. <laughs> awesome. So we'll start off with a company that we'll also talk about later at some point, Nick, in our OTT power rankings. Everyone keep an eye out for that. But some we've t- talked about quite a bit, obviously, in the streaming spaces to zone. And historically, you know, it's been a bit of a, a rough patch for them over, you know, the last year or so with different things going on. But Steve, you managed to speak to a representative at DAZN, and they are seeming quite optimistic about what's coming in the future for them. Yeah, so we've covered DAZN quite a lot from a general, I guess, holistic view across all, across all markets. Um, I, sp- I spoke to Shai Segev quite, quite recently, but we were getting an insight into Spain and the Spanish market and it was and the, how that global strategy is impacting on a local level. And so Bosco, who is the uh, chief executive of, of DAZN Spain, was able to give some insight into the changes that have happened at DAZN. DAZN was once this disruptor it came in with flexible subscriptions that would cost a lot less than than what you might get with a pay tv provider but the company's matured it's now part of the establishment it's trying to become profitable and and it's been doubling down on key sports in key markets and in spain that's soccer that's la liga and that's what it's done and it's now increased its prices beyond what it did you know when when it first arrived in the market and now you, a lot of commentators are saying that this is just inevitable. It means that the original vision can't happen. It, you can't have a uh, a nine ninety nine a month sports package that maintains the uh, the income for the for the rights holders and and uh, and whatnot. But Bosco was arguing that it's still cheaper than traditional methods. It's still cheaper than getting your sport bundled with your pay TV provider, with your phone line, um, with your broadband, because it, it's still, you know, I think off the top of my head, I think it's about twenty nine ninety nine a month. And that includes uh, all of DAZN Spain's content. But then you can also have a La Liga specific package. So it still works out as cheaper if, if that's what you want. So he was explaining that it is more affordable. This is their route to profitability. And one of the interesting things was he was able to show how DAZN's vision of becoming a platform would act, you know, start in practice. So Spain is one of their betting markets, for example. And he also said they want to be the platform for sport, not just for subscribers. They want to be for everyone. So video is just part of that. Um, you, you can you can still access betting. You can still access the other bits that, that they want. Uh, they might put more content in front of a paywall. So you've seen they've, they've launched a, a fast channel in, in, in Germany. We could see it in the market. And then the final bit that was really interesting was that they – that the zone said they might introduce more sport specific or property specific subscriptions in the future. And for me, that was what streaming initially offered. Rather than have a bundle, you'd build your own bundle. That's not what's happened really. I think as more of the um, I'm gonna call them the legacy legacy players have got involved, they've sought to bundle more and more content into a package, add additional services. But if you can create the building blocks of 
what your ideal sports package that still is something that'd be that'd be quite new so yes it was interesting to hear about how the zone's original vision is working out in practice given the wider changes at, at, at the company and interesting to hear from a, a local leader rather than the uh from hq basically yeah, and for reference to, to Steve's point that he was talking about the, the tiered model for DAZN in Spain for the complete package, everything that's included, it's twenty five euros a month. If you want a La Liga only subscription, it's eighteen ninety nine a month, and then for everything outside of Spanish soccer, it's twelve ninety nine a month. So they are opening up and having different ways to to get into that. Now we'll we'll talk about fast channels here in a little bit. Granted, that's a slightly different market, but you know, Nick, for you with DAZN, you actually spoke with the COO. Um, at 11 Sport. And interestingly, there has been that uh, new, I guess, venture between the two. And they mentioned his own being quite a, uh, a a good partner for them to enter into new markets. So was there anything you took away from that? Maybe that ties in a bit with Steve was mentioning from a DAZN perspective? Um, I would say the, the, the important part that Alessandro, who's the COO of 11, was quick to point out, it's a merger that's a proposed merger. They're still awaiting antitrust uh, sign-off. So it's not done yet. He kept reminding me that several times before we went on stage because I really wanted to talk quite a bit of detail about it. But if you look about those two businesses, you just look at the different markets they in. They're, they're almost always not in the same market. And the only market that they really are with any sort of quote-unquote significance um, is the Italian market where DAZN has Serie A rights and Eleven has Serie C rights. Um, so, I mean, they're not exactly com- com- conflicting with each other too much on, on the scale proposition there. What was interesting about the my discussion on, on the Eleven session was really just, uh, we talked about some of the challenges they've had. You know, they've launched in a, a truckload of markets. Uh, he gave a great example, actually, of when they tried to launch in Myanmar, uh, which um, I think I don't know the exact story, but basically it, the whole I think the, was it the military got involved uh, with trying to run the country and it got it went it was a, a bit of a shit show. So basically, they just didn't time that one well, um, which was a bit unfortunate more than anything. Um, but one of the things you know there was obviously the UK market that the eleven came into or tried to come into, and they had some challenges there. And he was just very quick to point out if you're going to launch in any market, just be very pragmatic about checking if you've got a checklist of all the things you need some of it might be business and strategy some might be technological some of it might be behaviors of audiences like propensity to sign up to these sorts of subscription products etc obviously your telco infrastructure you're going to be working with make sure all the boxes are ticked because if they're not you'll be you won't you'll fall short of your expectations and that was a, a pretty clear message that uh, I took away from from that session, so which is interesting if you think about the challenges that obviously eleven um, that Dazone has had in Italy, trying to go big um, with their Serie A rights, the the biggest uh, some of the biggest media rights deal, one of the biggest media rights deals for a single sports property in the world. I just found that was a very a nice complimentary thing to bring to the table and go. Well, we know the thing or two about going to markets, and and actually, you guys should be looking at it this way. Might be what they can bring to the table. Perhaps we'll we'll see. One of the things I found interesting, not necessarily from the TT Summit, but uh, our friend Carlo Delta Trait tweeted out just after the event, I didn't realize that the Serie A has the second highest, um, I guess, uh, deal per year outside of the NFL of all the major deals. Now, obviously, the NBA is coming up, but uh, I'll go find the tweet about it. But I was quite interested. I didn't realize Serie A was worth quite that much. But uh, yeah, it definitely rings true some of the issues his own has had and why that's kind of a big deal. 
Steve will probably know more on that than I would in terms of specificity. But you know, the the main thing that I I saw, I did see that tweet, and the difference is there's quite a few differences. One is that the NFL or NBA's rights are split a, a bunch of uh, amongst a bunch of broadcasters, so there's not one one leader in the market like like Dzonar. And he was also looking at from the streaming lens. But obviously, you know, they are making the Serie A available on on linear as well. From what I understand, it's not all exclusively on Dzonar uh, on um exclusively on streaming. If I'm correct, Steve. Yeah, I think that was it. it it's you can, you can make you can do anything with data, and of course, that's streaming only, <laughs> which we should we should add because I think there's probably a few other people thinking that doesn't sound right to me. But yes, in terms of pure streaming, but yes, they they, they have partnerships with some of the incumbents in Italy. So although it's a streaming player, they do have what let's call them legacy partnerships. Mm. And I just think just just finally on the design piece, uh, I didn't get to see. I got caught actually caught the tail end of Steve's session, but I think fundamentally. Uh, when I've spoken to a couple of people at DAZN, the 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 focus has really, really shifted in that business. Like really, really shifted from where it was 12 months ago from top down. And they're massively focused on distribution is almost like their priority. Their exclusive priority now is just get reach as much as possible, as many, many homes, many viewers, many eyeballs as you can. And that's why they're building out their programming portfolio with all sorts of different rights holders now. We've seen, we've talked about a bunch of announcements over the last six to 12 months. So, um, and they're big and bold about their profitability uh, objectives as well. So look, I think Spain, Spain will be a great litmus test. If they're able to make it work there, then that will be a great sign that they have serious legs to continue to build their business in other markets. That's for sure. So one of the things I said, we'd come back to Steve mentioned, you know, DAZN launching a fast channel in Germany. And one of the topics that came up in quite a few different sessions was sort of the growing impact of fast. And Marion and Chad, someone that we've had recently, previously, I should say, on the podcast to do a, a deep dive, also gave kind of a how to launch a fast um, channel. And she went through some stats that I thought quite big, eye-popping. It's one of those things when everyone shows stats, everyone grabs their phone out and starts to take photos. And she went through and just based on the USA, so keeping that in mind, in 2021, Fast created $2.1 billion in ad revenue. 2023, it's estimated to produce $4.1 billion in ad revenue. And by 2025, somewhere between $5.1 and $6 billion in ad revenue. And I think the stat she threw out there was eight to 10% of all red ad revenue and video content would be coming from fast platforms. And I think that just the last stat that she had there was there's currently 1,517 fast channels in the USA, but only 115 of them are sports channels. You know, one of the, I think one of the bigger things is almost none of them are kind of your premium tier one types of sports. It's lots of MMA, lots of outdoor sports, motorsports, highlights, wrestling. But basically the point was, it seems that there's quite a lot going in this direction, but we're still trying to figure out where it's going to fit in or perhaps where premium sports tier one sports fit into this, but there is a massive opportunity for it. Yeah, completely. Uh, I mean, the, the fast was all the, all the talk really. Everyone's interested in this space. They love the idea of the reach it can potentially give them. Um, what I took away from all the, the fast conversation, I have to watch back Marion's session because I, I do really want to look into it. I watched the, I went, I went to another session, which I actually ended up having to, Last minute, do the Q and A for um, which was which was fun, but uh, was with Samsung actually uh, were involved, and obviously Samsung is one of the leading uh, smart TV providers in the market, and they have their operating system, which is one of the the leading fast platforms in in the market. So what was interesting to hear from her is is that the, the tier one sports is still a difficult as a challenge to distribute and deliver on fast. Um, they're still having some technical challenge. They, they had a use case where they were 
launched in Spain. They launched uh, through one of the Spanish main Spanish TV providers. I can't remember the name. It's like RTE or RTV or something like that. They launched the World Cup on there and they had some technical challenges that they are working through to, to execute that effectively. That was at the time when we had her on stage. What I, what I don't know, the feeling I get from Fast is it is a big opportunity. It is quite complex. It's, it's not like you can build your own and it's going to be a success. You have to be working with the right people. You have to be having with the, the right conversations with the right operating systems, your Roku's and your Samsung's and all those guys to get them all lined up. And even then they could still actually reject you. So then you'd be, you know, you could create your own, perhaps your own version of a fast channel in your own owner operated platform, but that's obviously not the same thing here. So I just found it fascinating. And I, I might, before I go into it any, anymore, I think it's just, it's, it is a different ball game to what everyone else is talking around about building OTT platforms. It is a different method. It is a different model of monetization you are very much at the hands of these operating systems and these platforms that are the homes for all these channels that they can dictate who gets a spot and who doesn't it's really fascinating space to be looking at and i think a lot more is going to be talked about as you start to see what the zone and the nhl and others starting to to bring something to to that space yeah i think as you say it's it's very much a question of platform right and how do you get in front of those those people? It's it's a slightly different equation from free to air. It's it's not like in your regular regulated environment with people you know this brand awareness of your your channel. You need to you know the content might be free, great. How do people find out about it? And then it's not just niche players getting involved in this. You've got Amazon with Freevee. You've got uh, Pluto TV. There's lots of people competing for that for, for, for that audience. It, I, I think you're absolutely right. You do need to partner, not just from the, you know, you've got the usual technical considerations. Then you've got marketing. You've got the partnership element. I think it, it is a fascinating and fascinating place, especially with the wider reach and revenue argument. Um, and I think there's a lot of people trying to figure out how to find that balance on all fronts. Yeah, I mean, if you think about the leg- that's a regulation's a great point, and it sounds like the regulator in this instance is the operating systems themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, they get to dictate everything, and if it's up, if they're happy with it, then they'll let you play, and if they're not, they'll shut you down, or they won't let you get on on board in the first place. What was I found quite interesting in the Samsung chat is just the fact that it is so localized, so you have to basically agree deals in every market to have your your channel available on those. And the, obviously, there's a rev share model component, which they didn't go into much detail at that instance, but I think Marion Marion did in her session. I think fast is an exciting space, but it's got a lot of ways to go before it's a place where everyone is really going to understand the the step by steps you need to make if you want to get a, a place on the t- at the table uh, in in that space and how it can really work for you. So it is interesting. My point there is previously of the live rights. I did raise this with a couple of people. They they were to question that live is that difficult, but Samsung would you know they put their hands up and said it we have having some challenge with it so if they're having challenges with it then i think a lot lot would the lower tier rights probably okay um, but most of them are using fast for archive highlights etc and I, I expect just to see more of that for the near future and then once we get to a point where the platform is a bit more stable or the space is a bit more stable then i think you might start to see more of a you know design with their fast platform might start testing more and more stuff uh more, and more live content as and when it's uh platforms you know in the best position to do it i did think i overheard a broadcaster saying that they found it it is insanely expensive i thought they said it was insanely expensive to broadcast live on fast but i was overhearing a conversation so i'm not sure uh what context that was in yeah little hint hint wink wink maybe um (laughs) 
But basically, I think sort of the overview is there's a, clearly a large opportunity for it. But as we've kind of said here, we still need to try to figure it out a little bit. And it's certainly something I think we'll continue to keep an eye on uh, moving forward. Is, is, is there something there, Nick? Oh, no, it's just, I, I was just thinking really before. I wasn't actually going to say anything, but I was thinking more <laughs> about the fact that, uh, you know, a lot of people have been focused. There seems to be a lot of lines drawn and, and particularly from a rights owner perspective, no one's kind of like got the whole piece mapped out. They're doing their own little thing here and there. They've got their right strategy sort of mapped out, but not their sort of streaming strategy completely sort of end to end. And I think what you'll see is this fast will play a more defined role in trying to feed people from a fast uh, fast destination to an owned and operated platform. But most, I think, rights owners these days, so the smaller tier, like you're not your broadcasters we've talked about, but the lower tier ones, the, the non-big guys, they're all just focused still doubling down on their own platform first. And that fast isn't quite on their radar just yet, unless someone comes with a fast channel and says, hey, can we mop up some of your rights and and put it into, into ours? Then you might see a bit more activity. Yeah, well, I think another one's kind of interesting, you know, talking about niche rights, and it's actually something both of you mentioned as an organization you wanted to talk about. Nick, you mentioned it from more of a strategy perspective. Steve, you were talking about the way they were going to look at incorporating technology, but I interviewed Andreas Hayden, formerly, you know, CEO of Digital DFL, now moving over CEO at Dyn Media, which I'll admit I spent half the interview just making sure I pronounced Dyn correctly because I'm American. I can't pronounce things correctly. So I don't think I got it wrong on stage at all. But they are interesting. Um, I managed to speak a little bit to Andreas off stage, And like I said, one of the things you brought up, Nick, that we'll talk about here is just their overall strategy and the niche sports side of things and just given so much of the current uh, senior leadership comes from the DFL that football is not currently a part of their strategy, but I felt like there was a, maybe a half wink given that maybe somewhere down the road that might change. But, you know, we do want to talk about Dime Media because it does have an interesting strategy from a sports side and the strategy of the rights that it wants to go after. But then, Steve, you also wanted to focus a little bit on some of the technology that uh, Andres was talking about and having a slightly different approach to the existing OTT platforms that we see. So maybe, Nick, we'll, we'll start with the, the... Yeah, okay, no worries. Uh um, tr trust uh, Steve to be interested into the tech side, but but actually it's super important in the business side in this instance. But we'll we'll we'll, uh, we'll get to that in a second. Uh, what I really liked about Dyn Media, so I think it's good to take one step back for those that aren't fully au fait with what Dyn Media is. You know, Dyn Media is a is a a broadcast or oh, sorry an OTT platform or media business uh, that is being funded heavily by Axel Springer, which is one of the biggest publisher houses, publishing houses in, in Germany. Uh, and the leadership is the former CEO of the Bundesliga in Christian Seifert and the former CEO of DFL Digital, which is the digital arm of the Bundesliga, Andreas Hayden, right? So you put that those group of people together, sounds pretty compelling, right? And if you look into Axel Springer, if you haven't I'm not going to go into a rabbit hole with them, but if you look into them, you'll see they are big players, right? So there's, you've got the right type of people at the table. The main model um, that I understood, the, the, the stats that, that Andreas presented were that in Germany, they've, they're focused currently just on the German market and that the 23 million uh, people in Germany are quote unquote football fans. 17 million are non-football fans. They, they follow other sports. They're fans of sports, but they follow other sports. And their goal is to target that 17 million and not the 23. So great. That sounds 
like a really really great number to throw out and sort of you know get you quite excited then they the the model the rights model they've gone after is they've they've signed deals with four of the top five sports in germany or the leagues underneath the bundesliga um which I think they're all called Bundesliga, so the the football uh, league, and so they're building it. They're building in that model to really target those quote unquote seventeen million plus people. And so what I love about it is, I I really hope it works. Just full stop. It would be such a transformative thing if they can really create a product that is not built around football, because every basically every major sports broadcaster across the globe leans on football heavily to be successful with the exception being the us and they have american football right so everyone has their own version of football that they lean on to be if you want to grow a scale you need football to the table now now this is not to say that this real laser focus around non-football won't turn into football in a few years time once they've got an established audience i think that's almost obviously the blueprint here of where they're going to but i just really like the fact that they are doubling down on this i think it's a massive piece of work and without Axel Springer behind them to bring that sort of publishing and marketing clout that they can bring to the table to help them reach audiences and and you know market their products to people that aren't usually buying sports streaming services, um, then I think they'd have a lot of challenge. But with them at the table, then I'm really excited about what this could do. But it, it's not a it's not a a walk in the park. It's a big piece of work to make this make this happen. Yeah, the, my, my biggest takeaway is despite being a speaker of bad German, at no point did I clock that Dein Sport means your sport up until an, uh, the the sizzle reel they had before the the, uh, the presentation. Um, yeah, so obviously there's a technological element, but before that, I, I, just to stick with the business side of things, I think it's interesting. Germany is a strange market. It's the you know it's 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 a huge market, but it's not the most developed when it comes to pay TV. Um, you've got Sky, which is you know, which is you know part of the Sky in the UK. Um, it's not having the best of times in, in in Germany. You've got Deutsche Telekom with its Magenta service, but then traditionally you've not really had another provider. Um, there's been regional cable networks which are now owned by Vodafone. It's an interesting market, and and as you say, those that have found success have focused on football because, like many other countries, that is the most important thing. So I think it's an interesting choice, but it's also worth pointing out that Germany has had a, a free-to-air, well, not quite, more very basic cable channel called Sport 1 for quite some time, which it too has been frozen out of Bundesliga. It's had some Bundesliga 2 rights and some German Cup. So I think there is a market there. It's an interesting approach. Rather than seeing why they can't work, sorry, why you might need football, they're saying, well, surely the market opportunity is not football. And what was interesting for me on that on the presentation was they're not leaving things to chance when it comes to tech. They're working with Delta Tray on the, on, on the platform. They understand that it needs to be usable. It needs to be user-friendly. Uh, it needs to have the technological set. But then they're also looking at other bits in that stack. So they're looking at things like AI and how that can that can work and transform the economics. Because, and Nick, I know, I know you've said before, you think niche sports perhaps should be charging more for OTT. That's the that's what they should be doing. They're not. They're going for a 15 euro a month uh, price point. And, and Andreas Hayden said, I need to be looking at this technology if I'm going to make a streaming service work at 15 euro a month. So it's a very interesting proposition. Like you say, it, I, I don't think it works without actual Springer on board because, and, and the quality of people they've, they've managed to recruit from, from, the, from the DFL. And what I'm thinking here is we're not just going to see an interesting 
case study in terms of trying to build a streaming service without the most important sport particular market we might see a a mainstream streaming service that is using all these technologies that promise revolutionize sports coverage whether it's ai cameras where you don't need a, an, an operator whether it's 5g to get the signals to um to send to remote production facility to get to get to get this out and doing this at scale i think it's a fascinating i'm not going to call it an experiment because that probably does eventually a disservice but i think it's really interesting to watch from a technological stand, standpoint what they choose to do what works what doesn't and whether anyone looks to imitate it i think it's a really good point i i'm fascinated from the end to end on this i think it's going to be interesting to see if they can they can pull it off and and you actually reflect on the bundesliga's journey the last few years and what they've been doing behind the scenes that no fans will be really paying a lot of attention to but their investment into their dfl for equity project their digital innovations they were one of the first to launch uh, a 9 by 16 video so the vertical formats to test that and trial that model they've been using 5g in stadiums with vodafone they've been trialing all this stuff that's a great precursor to what they're going to be trying to do uh at dyn media with turning those those technologies into a a true use case and how it can make meaningful impact uh, in their business so look i really really want it to be successful because i think it would completely change i guess like the way like i I'm, I'm everyone who knows who listens i'm a volleyball guy i've been you know the access to things like that is you'll never get discoverable you, you'll never see volleyball being consumed by mainstream audiences in the uk ever because at the moment it's either hidden behind a paywall of volleyball world tv or it just will never get free to air and this just gives them a chance to sort of spread the interest in sports more widely than just around football as the core product i mean bearing in mind sort of the historic you know i tried to set the scene in terms of the paid tv market we could be in an interesting situation in germany where two of the biggest players are disown and dine both streaming first propositions not formed by any of the, the incumbents so i think that would be an interesting market dynamic if that ever happened so i think everyone should be watching this with, with, with interest not just dine but also the market yeah completely and one thing i would uh add on that uh i don't know how significant this is but one of the other things they incorporated um and by the way, I got the stats not wrong, but I, I didn't articulate them right. Basically, he said that, that the 17 million people love other sports and 23 million love football. So that was the, that was the delineation. But they, they made that, that another example of uh, a media company trying to be a one-stop shop. So they want to be a 365 destination for fans, not just about the live product. Everyone is trying to move in that direction. That was super consistent from everyone we heard of at the OTT event uh, that, that disowned and FIFA Plus and and the NFL and the NBA are trying to create those single homes and destinations for sports. But again, even someone who's trying to run a, a tight ship here on the costs and uh, investing in technology will still trying to become that single destination for their sports fans to come every single day. Oh, and one other final thing on there on the business model, they're going to be giving 10% of their revenue that's paid by fans to their favorite sport of choice. No idea if that's going to be significant or not, but I thought it was an interesting model, even though they're going to be probably paying for some media rights in there in the middle. So I'm not sure how that dynamic works, but it's all, it's always good to give back and just changing up the order of things we wanted to go through just a little bit, because you're talking about these owned and operated platforms. You had the opportunity um, to speak to Ralph Rivera at the NBA looking after EMEA. Uh, you know, one of the things that came up, you know, talking about these owned and operated platforms, sort of the NBA strategy, and we've, we've covered a little bit the NBA app launching, but, you know, is there anything from that specifically with that session or that you'd want to kind of highlight as something that you wouldn't have maybe seen in any of the other coverage that's come out? 
Sure. Well, sure. I think there were two things that really stood out for me when I think back. And I have I, I find that I get tunnel vision or, um, at these events when I'm speaking to people where I actually forget half of what's being discussed and I have to go back and watch or listen to it again to remember what we talked about. But two things I do really recall from that session quite vividly is uh, Ralph, for, for context, Ralph Avera's background is is he's got decades of experience in the digital world. He's worked for AOL. He's worked for BBC. He's worked for Eurosport and on the digital side. Uh, and one thing he just emphasized that, that, that from a, a user con, uh, consumer experience perspective, the biggest available screen is is still the best available screen. So he was to emphasize that a lot of the people will talk about you know, mobile and, and what you can do with that. But in terms of for the live sports experience, it's still the biggest that matters. So connected TVs are, are still the, at, at the heart and soul of the live sports strategy. And the other thing was, um, you know, with OTT platforms and creating your own destinations, um, first first party data is is at the heart of a lot of that conversation. The importance of knowing your audience and knowing your fans. And what I just quite liked about that, and you should really read uh, the review uh, for those listening, the Steve McCaskill review on the NBA app because it gives a greater insight than I ever could on on what the NBA is doing. So go find that on the Sports Pro Media website. Um, but the NBA ID that they've created, and they've just they they they've created it's just like a username password concept in principle, right? You sign up, you give your details, you create an ID, you're you're good to go. But the difference here is they just really acknowledge that there needs to be a value exchange for that, and so everything they're doing around that is to try and create experiences that provide more value than just putting your name and details into the system. And it could be things like I believe there is. Again, Steve, you might be able to flesh out the details on this, but you, you'll get uh, various rewards for for your activities on on the platform, um, and and there's a host of sort of more community led initiatives to give you value outside of just being you know a username, uh, email address, and password to them. There's a couple of trends that have sort of confluencing there, and that and the idea of community is definitely one of them. It's one of the things that lots of web web three evangelists like to promote, um, but there is sort of a I mean, whether you'd use Web3 to have that community aspect is is up to you. But as you say, you need that value exchange. It's, um, I think it was one prediction. I think it may have been Seven League where you don't view streaming platforms as streaming platforms, you view as membership platforms, of which, again, video is just a part of that that experience. And what the NBA is trying to do in ID might seem fairly obvious, but it's not been done in a lot of cases. It's there's um, as partly because sport perhaps has lagged behind other industries. It's much more common in... Um, I guess, I guess, retail, for example, um, you mean you look, you know, your your Tesco club card acts as your identity. Um, Amazon, obviously, um, even clothes retailers, they 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 can, they can use this data to give you offers, give you uh, give you benefits. And the uh, sports industry is, is cottoning on. It's also working with big tech to to make this happen. And again, having a single application for everything for everyone is actually not as common as you might think in in in, in the sports world. So. Yeah, I, th- I think it, it, it's doing some very interesting things. The NBA has always been slightly ahead of the curve when it's when it's when it's come to this. Yeah, I think it's just fundamentally it's actually way more complex than people would think in the general business world. That to just connect the dots on these things, like there's a lot that has to go on behind the scenes to be able to connect the systems and the technology to make sure it does all talk to each other properly. We're going through something like small like this in our own business currently, and I'm learning a lot about about the challenges and. 
I've got a pretty small business to, to worry about compared to what the NBA has with its um, millions and millions of fans across the world. So I can only imagine the complexity that they've had to go through, you know, leaning into the video products, their apps, their games, their licensing, and, and anything else they want to, to bring to the table. So I just like that they, um, they really appreciate there needs to be further uh, insights brought to the table than, than just asking for people's details for the sake of asking them. Well, you know, Steve mentioned a community is something that was brought up a couple of times. And Nick, you had the the opening session of the entire event with Andrew Giorgio um, at Warner Brothers Discovery. And, you know, one of the things that they talked about, amongst other things, was sort of this idea of community. And one of the new features we had at this year's event was the Sports Pro Couch, where we were able to have, you know, brilliant contributors like Steve, um, also Tom Bassam, who I'm specifically going to raise his question. Uh, you know, they were talking about community itself. And he mentioned, you know, I'm not the world's biggest cycling fan, but he sort of mentioned the differences between a golf TV um, versus GCN. And it was kind of an interesting answer that you got from Andrew in terms of how they're looking at community for the future of Warner Brothers um, Discovery, particularly in Europe, given sort of the different markets that are there, the different pockets that sit within that. But it was a really interesting um, approach to two communities, um, one going one direction, one perhaps going the other. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we there's a really interesting chat with Andrew and Andrew is a great um, person to listen to about all this sort of thing. Uh, and the two main examples of where discovery have doubled down on this sort of single sports approach or single platform, single sports approach is with golf TV and with GCN or the global cycling network, but very different approaches to that. And he was quick to point out why one's worked better than the other um, global cycling network for context um, has been built from sort of the ground up, with no live sports rights um youtube channel i think is at the heart and center of that and then it sort of has grown um to build build a, build around more than just cycling as, as a sport but the whole all the aspects of what makes being makes you a cyclist if you're interested into that sort of thing you know you think about all the people that like to go cycling every weekend it's not just about who's going to be racing in the big stage it's, it's about them their own health and their leisure and their uh, their own interests um, and so they over time built this community up through the global cycling network and that's when discovery sort of came knocking on the door and and mopped uh, mopped them up or so to speak and brought them into the discovery ecosystem so they've been working on that project in in, in sort of in isolation uh, and then you have the golf tv one which is i think it was something like 1.2 billion dollars initial investment or outlay which was for the pga tours media rights as well as some european tour rights and their goal was to create again a single destination for golf fans to come to they had tiger woods on board as an ambassador they had a pretty uh, awesome group of people and rights all lined up to be part of this product they then also acquired golf digest which was a you know as a publisher covering the the world of golf and trying to make it's kind of all like trying to create this community building around uh, the live rights um, as the, the at the heart and soul of all of that product. Then within that deal, they were sub-licensing those live rights out to broadcasters market by market. So Discover was kind of acting a bit like a, an, a media rights agency in some instances where they could sell those rights. If they weren't at the right price, they would bring them into their platform. So there's a bit just a bit of scene setting. I think we might have covered those before, but I think it's worth covering the two. The main difference here is one was built from the bottom up and one was built kind of from the top down. So Golf TV was live rights, premium live rights, the heart and soul of this product. So if you want to watch live golf, you buy Golf TV and you get all the other stuff around it. The GCN was done the other way around, building around this whole network of content where actually the live the live 
cycling events weren't at the heart and center of that product um, to, as a reason to, to access it. And what they found is if you build the golf TV way, is what Andrew said in the session, uh, it's really difficult to basically make that stick as a community-based proposition, a membership-based proposition, and you're really still only serving the diehard uh, golf fans at best. Um, and they couldn't get that relationship, I, I, I suppose, created like they could with the GCN one. So that's one of the reasons why Golf TV is going to be shut down in the coming months, um, and most of the golf content will be therefore available on Discovery+. Plus. Whereas GCN will still continue to live, at least for the foreseeable future as is, because they have built a great product and a great audience that really believes in that platform. Yeah, I don't, I don't think we should be too surprised at that, given one of the unique selling points of Discovery Plus has been the ability to use these rights over multiple, I guess, in multiple ways. So um, I think Andrew previously has told me that, you know, what about food at Wimbledon if you use the food network because they've got Wimbledon rights um it's a different way of doing it it's much harder to build as you say build up build up from the bottom like what what what, what happened with GCN so no surprise to me you still see the lifestyle content still see the the we'll call it the the sporting expanded universe on uh on on, on Discovery Plus uh, I, I think it's it's just very difficult to do to build that build that from scratch even when you've got a sport that has that that level of passion like golf um you know that people will spend a lot of time watching golf how to improve their swing um looking at uh, particular golf courses they want to go to so just highlights the difficulty yeah and to think about um what what's going to happen though in terms of the platform golf tv was effectively a product that was built for the diehard fan shifting into discovery plus means the targeting of the diehard fan is not going to be at the core Right, the, mark, the, the focus for Discovery Plus will now be it's part of the programming mix of live sports on their platform, uh, which is great, but it, they're not going to be serving the, the die, quote-unquote diehard fan as much. And it all aligns with the bigger, greater strategy of Warner Brothers Discovery that their CEO, David Zaslav, has outlined that they want to become a single destination. So it makes sense in that way and it probably saves them a lot of cost. Um, but I could, I could think that there is a, a bit of a loss for those that do really buy into that sort of proposition of having a, a real... I guess, engaging, valuable proposition that people can come to all the time to access more than just the live sports product itself. I can't imagine they're going to have nearly as much programming like they would have for golf TV if it was successful around just the golf as a leisure, as, as, a, as a lifestyle, et cetera. So one other question really quickly, Nick, and I know we've talked about the the joint venture between BT and Discovery a little bit, but do you perhaps have a different feeling now having spoken to Andrew post the agreement that... Uh, do you feel joint venture is still the appropriate way to describe that? I don't know. I I kind of feel like it's. I think um, there's not it's not rocket science, but I really feel this is more of a, a gradual takeover uh, of what B, BT Sports asset were assets were, uh, rather than a true joint venture. He didn't say that. This is kind of a sense that I got from you. Know, you look at some of the details in the the terms of the joint venture. You know, some of the the assets and the the operating of the business goes into the discovery parent company. Um, and I think, you know, it's, it's only a matter of time before BT sport or BT sort of starts to step a bit further and further away from it as, as they can without losing, um, losing money on this. Like they could have, if they didn't have discovery turn up at their doorstep with a, with a, with a deal. Yeah. I, I think as we've discussed before, I think 
BT were very happy to have walked away entirely, couldn't get the exit deal that it wanted. What you've just described is built into that agreement in terms of buying BT out. At the minute, BT is more or less a financial partner in terms of it, it backs the, uh, the rights acquisition. Uh, I guess a lot of the key staff, have, well, the staff have transferred uh, to, I guess, technically a joint venture organization. By all intents and purposes, it's it's being led by WBD Sports, as it was known. Although it could be, uh, again, based on a few reports, who knows, could be Max Sports uh, this time like next year. Um, although I'd be sad to see the, I can't imagine they get rid of the Eurosport brand. I think that would be... Uh, not great move, given that half of the half of the continent uses <laughs> uses that anyway. Well, maybe we'll add that to the list of not so bold predictions of what we can review next year in terms of what the name is. Um, one other interesting session that came up. Uh, I mean, they were all interesting. First of all, I should just you know, make that clear. But one of the ones that you know was really interesting as well was with WSL and Sky. So, Nick, I'm going to try to talk a little bit through it just to give you some time to pull up your phone and get those statistics. Because, like we said, people love slides <laughs> and people love data that come up on that. But it was an interesting case study here in the UK talking about sort of the growth that the WSL has had um, domestically, particularly off the back of the the Women's Euros tournament. This upcoming or this previous summer that we just had and really kind of talking about how that deal with skies helped to promote the growth of the women's game and just some of the numbers they're getting in. and some of the stuff is really interesting as well not only just viewership but some of the stuff that's happening on social media some of the stuff that's happening um from consumption on YouTube. But there's a lot of really interesting statistics there that I think probably would have surprised people um had they sat in on that session. Yeah for sure. I mean it's clear that skies invested or vested into this sort of development pro this project this opportunity and they've had some pretty pretty massive growth the numbers here as i'm trying to read my pictures i took of the screen at the event itself too um, so we're, we're looking live so to speak if you're looking at this as a recording then you'd be wondering why i'm looking at my phone is because i'm literally looking at in pictures on my phone um but their audience numbers grew an average viewership from 45,000 in 2021 to 123,000 for 21 and 22, and now to 234,000 for 22 and 23. So you look at that as a year, year on year growth. And from last year, that's nearly 100% growth year on year. So that's viewership audiences on Sky. Uh, and you think about that, obviously, off the back of the success of the Euros for the, the English team, uh, it makes a lot of sense that there's a bit of extra interest in the market. What was also interesting, though, was some of the social stats. So they showed some stats from, from Twitter, from TikTok, and from YouTube. Um, and what was perhaps interesting on there, we did touch upon it in our brief um, appearance on the Sports Pro podcast, where we finally got some airtime. Uh, but uh, their, their audiences more than doubled on Twitter in six months. Uh, it's 63% male and 37% female in, on Twitter. On TikTok, bespoke player content um, so content directly from the players themselves, 73% of the audience is female. And then inside the WSL, which is a, a show that they've created on YouTube, gets 54% female. But their highlights gets only 14.9% female audiences. So the highlights generate an 85% male audience, but their behind-the-scenes stuff, their more documentary-style content, their magazine stuff, is nearly 50-50. So I thought that was quite an interesting breakdown um, that they, they're able to get. And that those are all on Sky Sports, their own channels, right? So they, they're giving us insight into, into those. Just, an, I guess, an interesting insight to see that different types of content can really generate a completely different dynamic in the demographics that 
want to engage with your sport depending on what format it is and what platform i feel like i might be regurgitating a sales pitch for for a vendor but it really does show that you do have to tailor this stuff right you can't just throw out on your channel hope you know hope some hope, hope something sticks and one of the things that Sky has been doing is that, you know, they said on stage is they've been giving the women's game as you know, the same resources that they would give a, mm. a, a men's game. You know, there's no stone unturned on that front. It's got the same presentation. Uh, it's it's got all the you know the I, get, I, I can't remember what it's called anymore, but I'm going to call it a Sky Pad. But the uh, the tactics the tactics board. I think that's just made a huge difference. They've they put time, you know, put time and effort into this. They know they need to build this out. I mean, sorry, they know there's an opportunity to build this out and it can become something bigger. They're obviously quite fortunate with the, the England Euros success. And that, that breakdown is always quite interesting because you can see from ticket sales data, even for the Euros, that most people buying tickets were men. Um, I believe, even for, even for the Euros. So yeah, you do, you have to tell that audience. Um, another thing interesting that was mentioned was the the subject uh, the topic access. So Premier League players tend to be a bit more guarded than WSL players who understand they need to have be more open to, to to grow the game, and that's why they can create a lot of this content. And it's just quite different from from what we we see in the, in the Premier League as a result, because the, the players involved understand why they're doing it, understand the need to to connect with that that audience. I thought the whole presentation was absolutely fascinating. I, I think again, in, even just seeing how it's grown from the first season to the second season of, the, of this partnership, and we are sort of seeing a. Uh, a commercial explosion in, in in real in real time when it comes to women's football in England. Yeah, and like I said, it's it's very interesting. I'm certainly hoping as you know, someone's coaching women's American football, it continues to just explode in more opportunities. You know, I think we've described it a couple times. Sort of, if you're not on the train already, uh, you're very likely going to be left behind. One of the other really interesting case studies, and you know, maybe we should have gotten the Sports Pro podcast co-host and resident cricket expert George on to you know talk about this one in particular uh, was the presentation done by the ICC. And you know, for me, I'm not necessarily a big cricket fan, so I'm probably going to have to park it and you know hand it off to some of uh, Steve and Nick who are more from uh, cricket-based countries than I am. But it was really interesting, Nick, and you know, we looked up some of the the most popular markets for the ICC and some of the most popular games. Games, but it just sort of showed the opportunity that exists with specifically OTT and streaming, how you can build out in some niche markets that maybe would have been surprising just based on where you would think demographically would be a popular region for cricket. Well, should we do a pop quiz? What was the uh, what were the stats of the top five countries? I think if you were going to tell me that the top five countries were, have you got them in front of you? Because I do have them out. in front of me. Number one was Australia. Probably not a surprise. But then the next one, number two, is Germany, followed by the UK. And then it was rounded out by the USA and Japan as the top five countries um, where content is viewed on the ICC platform. There you go. So three markets that are definitely non-traditional cricket countries making the top five just shows, again, like we're talking about with the WSL example, that, that you need to have a platform and a destination available to bring audiences to you if it's not available you won't engage with engage with them right so um i thought that was quite an interesting uh makeup what was the 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 top the top team watched or the, the top teams uh was was it what, what was it nepal nepal featured in three of the five most watched games yes big nepalese communities in germany and us and japan I suppose. I mean, like I said, it's just, it's very interesting stats. I'm not going to embarrass myself anymore after I mispronounced a country earlier. I'll let Steve do it. So, yeah. 
<laughs> I'm, I'm not going to shop you in, Chris. Don't worry. Um, but I, th- I, I always think cricket is one of the best examples of how ATT can help a sport because, it, you know, uh, Chris, we, we don't need to go over how long a test match lasts. I know you were shocked last time, but that's a lot of airtime that no one's going to offer in a country that's not a mm. cricket playing country. And even then, it's a challenge, even in, in, in England and Australia. So by making this stuff available, you're not missing out on anything. Um, I mean, I you know you say I'm from a, a cricket playing country. Yes, I'm, I'm I'm from one, but I grew up in the great cricket playing nation of Switzerland. And legally, there was next to no way to watch any cricket apart from I think they had a World T20 on Eurosport two once. Um, so it just makes perfect sense. You're, you're finding audiences that just aren't there or don't have a legal alternative to watch your content. I think this is a you know it's a great example, and especially something like cricket. But yes, of course, it doesn't have too many countries that play it but it has a lot you know there's diasporas of, of, of countries that do follow this um i know for a fact um you mentioned germany and i, I don't think anyone is going to know who this person is but um moritz, moritz Voltz once got invited to lords to watch a game after he marked his times column and uh somebody a bit more famous Didi haman who was the former german international was a massive fan of cricket because he watched the Ashes 2005 so there's a chance to build audiences they might not be huge but i, I just think cricket is perhaps one of the best examples out there well i do remember when i in 2009 i think it was i was traveling around europe before i started my my days at sports pro and i ended up in austria and uh had a friend there that we caught up with and they asked them random, randomly to play in a touch rugby tournament there on an ad hoc basis we were driving around in a van with oh sure we'll, we'll we'll play joined turned up on the day and it was right next to a cricket cricket field some cricket nets and um there was some team training and playing there we're like well this team looks a bit bit ropey you know they're not exactly the highest standard uh and it turns out they were the austrian national team getting ready for uh <laughs> for their next international match and we thought but probably they're not probably higher than a third grade or fourth grade team in 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 the uk so um what do i say that well i don't know i just want to talk about the fact that i sort of watched the austrian national team train um but also because i think you know there is these pockets of audiences that do exist and without platforms like ott it's pretty simple they will never get access to content that they do want to watch so ott plays such an important role one of the points that finn uh, bradshaw made in the his session uh, on the icc with pete bellamy from endeavor was they were able to use that data and then go to broadcasters and say, hey, look, we do have an audience there. You know, like this is the scale of it. You guys rank in the top five or top 10 nations that consume our platform. Why not consider bringing some Iron Cricket coverage to your local um, broadcasters? Um, so it, it's a starting point, right? Without that, they got next to no data to go on other than maybe some social media data that there's an audience in that market. And that's not meaty enough to really sort of whet the appetite of a broadcaster. So look, I, I felt like ICC's um, strategy on this is an, um, a pragmatic one, uh, and one that needs to happen, but it's just step-by-step, step, right? Build a platform, get some audience, keep building on that a little bit, then hopefully take take the next step and, and get a, a broadcast deal or two in each of the markets where they start to get some numbers up and see where it goes from there. Maybe we'll see cricket on Dine Sport. Maybe. I'm, I'm signing up even if I can't access it. I'll get a VPN or something. <laughs> 
We'll, we'll speak to Andres about it. Uh, one of the other interesting things at the moment, not even just sports related, but social media seems to just be going through a bit of a crazy, hectic phase at the moment. Um, you know, we've talked about Meta having layoffs. Uh, I don't think we need to elaborate too much on uh, what's going on at Twitter with Elon and all those sorts of things. But we did have a panel um, that included Snap, Meta, and Depper Labs, who sort of on the outskirts of the social media world. But, you know, were there any takeaways for you, Steve, particularly kind of where social media platforms are now sort of positioning themselves when it comes to the future of sports content? Yeah, as you say, I don't, I don't want to get bogged down on too many specifics of what's happening on my favorite social media platform. But we're definitely at, I guess, we're at a junction in terms of social media. We've had a decade of it becoming increasingly more public, more user generated, I think there's going to be a bit more of a shift towards community um, and a bit more, not necessarily specialization of platforms, but definitely more of a one platform for this, one platforms for that. And the three that we had on stage, I mean, I mean, Dapper Labs is a community-based Web3 company, you know, I guess. Meta has its own vision of where it wants to go. It's shifting away from semi-public to groups and the metaverse. And then you've got Snapchat, which is... Yes, there's a public element, but it's also core messaging. So you could argue that these are all social adjacent rather than social platforms, and they're all consumption rather than user generation, although I guess snaps on, on Snapchat might be might be the exception. So it was just sort of interesting to hear where each of their visions are of, you know, of, of where this is going. So Meta, again, as you might imagine, was immersive experiences, um, and a lot of them would be sport-related, Dapper Labs, uh, Again, again, immersive-based experiences, but get with more video, like you know, NBA Top Shot in terms of video clips and, and collectibles and creating fandom around that. And again, Snapchat being AR, um, again, be a, a consumption platform. How that's going to, you, know, you have to guess view these social networks as another channel to distribute content. If you're a right, if you if you're a rights holder, look at which the technologies that are, that are coming into play. Things like, I guess vertical video, which we, we talked about earlier, that's going to become more important. Whether we see long-term, uh, sorry, long-term, long-form uh, vertical video remains to be seen. As you say, the Bundesliga have been experimenting with that. I think Sky have done done it in the UK. I believe La Liga may have. So mm-hmm. it's just interesting to see where we're going in this, oh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't want to call it post-social media because that's ridiculous, but it's definitely going to be a new era of social media, um, a very different one, one that might be more technological, technologically led and one that's definitely going to be based more around consumption and community rather than having a, a universal feed that you you look at periodically i do find the the positioning of snapchat quite a curious one right because obviously well everyone has i think everyone seems to have a little bit of a slightly different take on what snapchat is for me it was a, a messaging platform with some some content on there where i but when i talk to the guys there they're talking about their own ar business that works um, supplies AR solutions and technology to businesses in the industry and then works out, um, you know, different initiatives off the back of that, including rev share monetization models that they can use using Snapchat as a, the core product for that. But um, I don't know. I just find that they almost like in, in the B2B world, they don't want to be known as that. They want to be known as this AR partner, which I don't really understand why that is the case. I think it, one thing, okay, you look at Twitter, the use by media and rights holders been a bit more was more organic, at least in the early days. Of course, now it has a team that deal, well, it used to have a team that deals with the partnership side of things, tries to get get the uh, um, sporting one aboard. Snapchat's always had that 
relationship. It's always had to work to get them on board. Mm. Uh, it's shared its reputation as you know, these disappearing messages can be used for various things. It's managed to shed that. It, it's now much more mainstream. So I think because it's always had that partnership element to it, I think that's what sets it apart. The reason why it's perhaps having to pursue technology a bit more is potentially because every time it comes up with something, another social media network might steal it. Um, I, I, I'd say it's a combination of the two. And I think it's always because it has been more of a, a consumption-based platform, even though a lot of it's user-generated. I think it just that's why it's got a different... Um, a different uh what's, what's the word different perspective on things is the snapchat steve fall in the bucket of dark social do you think or is that just a normal social platform because you know yeah i think it might be useful for the the audience and definitely not myself to know what dark social is a dark social is supposed to be platforms that are you know uses social media platforms but are not ones where it's all public outward facing so whatsapp is classified as a dark social platform I think Snapchat is as well, you know, partially possible because of the fact that, you know, your, your image, your messages aren't saved and all those sorts of things as well. But if you don't know the answer, then I'm, I'm sure I'm just someone who's probably heard something and just hung on to it basically no, rather no, than you know, being a defined term. It's an interesting term. And I've, I've definitely learned something by being on, on this today, but I think the fact that you can tag snaps um, to certain locations and view them. So you go on a, a map and you get like a heat map of where activity is happening means there is a, there is a public facing element to it. And the fact you can um, subscribe to people's people, some people's snaps, you keep stuff public. It's probably in the same way uh, I guess I'll, Instagram is. Yeah, I would, um, I think, uh, I, when I say think, I just had a quick look and saw the first line that came up on my Google search, but uh, emails and messenger messaging platforms are basically a part of that mix, basically where people share stuff, you know, so it could be, you could be even in the office, right? Where you go, I'm going to send an email around to everyone that they should have a look at this, read this article. That's a form of dark social. Yeah. At least that's what I believe it to be. Well, anyway. it, was, it was interesting. My, before I was at Sports Pro, I used to work at Omnicom, so big media agency, and dark social was a big part of that. And to your point, uh, any sort of messenger app. And really, at the time, the big thing was uh, GIFs or GIFs, whichever part of the world or however you want to pronounce it, although I'll go with GIFs. But GIFs were a big part of, you know, uh, dark social and creating assets that would sort of build brand awareness through that. So yes, it's something that we don't talk about a lot, Nick, but maybe we should do something on it because I at least know from my media buying days, uh, dark social is something people talk about. It's just, it's almost impossible to measure because that's why it's dark. Yeah, that's one of the problems, right? Is the measurability of it. That's that's yeah, that is why it, why it is dark. I, and I do get forwarded stuff on WhatsApp, which is a form of you know obviously consuming media. Although I love how it now tells me if people forward it to many people, so you're forwarded many times. And I, I now know which of my friends are serial uh, forwarders. I was going to say spammers, but it's probably a bit. Bit, bit too much i was going to say misinformation spreaders but yours is nicer <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so one one last topic we kind of want to talk about here and it's sort of an interesting one because i don't think anybody would necessarily associate them with sports ott uh, but we did have a really interesting session that even i when i i heard it be announced internally from our team had to raise my eyebrows a little bit but we also got to hear from OnlyFans. Um, so Steve, maybe, you know, you sat in on that session, maybe give the people a bit of an idea of why they shouldn't instantly just raise their eyebrows as we sit here and talk about OnlyFans for the next few minutes. Well, it was great to hear from our resident OnlyFans expert, De uh, Tom Bassam, uh, <laughs> who was a natural person for, the, for this yep. session. And you, Steve, we went, can you describe what OnlyFans is for those that don't know? 
OnlyFans, which I only learned about the other week, um, is a, I guess it's a, it's a, it's a direct-to-consumer direct subscription-based service. And by that, what I mean is you directly pay the person whose content you're subscribing to. So if it, in theory, if there was an artist that you liked, a, a gym instructor or a, a chef, and you wanted to get their content, you could pay them a monthly subscription and you can access that and you can message them uh, videos, images, posts, that sort of thing. Now, quite naturally, with anything a bit like on Substack, the... Substack for creators, perhaps a, a bit of Substack was more fully featured beyond newsletters, and uh, mm, you know, I get yeah. there's more, there's more features, more, more tools for the creators to communicate with their audience, I suppose. And like most things on the internet, this has been used for adult content, um, predominantly, and that's how it's built up its its reputation, it's helped it's built up its its business. It believes its platform can be used for more than that. Using examples that I've I, I described just before, and sport is one of those. Its pitch is that you can subscribe to your athlete and support them directly. So, let's say they're an individual athlete competing in, uh, I guess, a tennis player. That that's a lot of money. That's that's coaching. That's travel. That's tournament entries. You can pay them ten pounds a month to support them, and in exchange you get. Uh, access to them you get access to their to their content obviously OnlyFans takes i assume takes a, a cut from that for facilitating its platform but it definitely believes this is an area of growth and if we talk about snapchat shedding off its early image that's what OnlyFans wants to do and i think OnlyFans has got a couple of advantages in that hey it's quite well known now even despite it might be being well known for what it describes as uh Spicy content. That was the term. That was their the term that Kylie uh, Blair chose to describe it as. And also, for example, it's not called Pornhub, so it's not a, it's not got a uh, a already got a certain idea in mind. Although I must admit, if you are a technology journalist, the the Pornhub analytics site is one of the best things on the internet in terms of getting ideas of uh, broadband speed. They have a whole non safe, uh, sorry, a safe for work site that gives you insight to people's internet connections. But my point being, it it has that potential to, <laughs> to differentiate its brand to become a mainstream platform. And, and, and Kylie Blair spoke with with Tom Bassam about what it wanted to do, and interestingly, uh, Tom put up a poll at the start of the session. Uh, and asked the audience to say whether they would actually use OnlyFans for their content or use it as a distribution method. And at the end, did the poll again. And uh, although it, <laughs> although Kylie said that part of the, the 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 motivation behind doing things like OTT Summit was to promote this idea of OnlyFans as being more than spicy content, after the session, I think it was more or less the same in terms of who would be interested in using it for their for their for their content and we had a, a rally driver uh, alba sanchez on stage as well explained how she uses the platform to to speak to her fans um and distribute this this sporting content so as you say chris it's not the first thing you expect when you come to otc summit to hear from only fans but i thought it was really interesting to hear Kylie make the case for it and explain why you should consider it and we've seen things like the players tribune again which is although i suspect some of the content is ghostwritten it's an idea of them bypassing a journalist um which obviously i don't think is always the best case being a journalist myself i think there's very reasons re there's reasons for us to be in that conversation and not just because that's how i make a living um, but we've seen that 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 trend towards 
going really direct with the audience. And, and the early days of social media were like that. Twitter was like that in the very early days. I know, Chris, again, you've mentioned that you, you signed up to Twitter because of uh, Chad Johnson, uh, Chad Ochocinco. There was It was like that in the early days um, on, on our side of the pond with, with athletes who are less guarded and are using it in a much more natural way. So I guess it sort of comes back to that. It comes back to supporting athletes. It comes back to having control over what, you, what you're putting out. I thought it was a fascinating session. I'm, I'm sure as people need, you know, will still need to be convinced, perhaps don't want to associate with the brand that is still known for the spicy content. But there's definitely a logic there is what I would take away from that. Yeah, I mean, I think it, they're they're not the only people to raise it, but I've heard it in other sessions, you know. Now he's, I don't, I don't, X-Man United. I didn't want to say disgraced X-Man United player, but, you know, Ronaldo, for example, has more Instagram followers than Man United, the football club. But at the moment, he doesn't, he's not actually a broadcaster in this whole argument of athletes becoming broadcasters. It just seems like OnlyFans is a potential platform to basically allow them to, you know, cut out the middleman and go directly into creating their own content. The other thing I would say about OnlyFans platform, I believe that it's not a case of like Twitter where you can just take what you want. It's out in the public domain. I think there is, I don't know if it's proper DRM, but it also means they have control over how that content is disseminated of course it's not going to stop someone taking their phone out and taking recording a video or taking it taking a picture but it means they might be less guarded by speaking to an audience that in theory do support them it's not going to be taken out of context it's not going to be spread um i just think it's, it's it's an interesting model yeah i mean you would think about this you think about this model and what Roller could play. Don't forget all the other stuff we talked about about its positioning and market. Like the concept of having, uh, as an athlete, um, your own direct uh, channel for audiences to engage with you and your own exclusive content. It's not a new idea, but it's not really been done well yet. You think about uh, what was that platform? Otro that came to market, which was supposed to be built on a similarish mindset of basically you subscribe to the platform and you what you get is access to all these different stars and behind the scenes and have a, a different relationship than you would have through the traditional channels although that was more you subscribe to otro and you get access to everything including it wasn't the same but it wasn't exactly the same but the concept was about the athlete first being at the heart of it um and I do think there's a lot of legs in that. Like, could you imagine if Ronaldo said, okay, I'm going to launch a subscription product tomorrow um, that, that fans can sign up to and they pay me 10, 20, whatever price he wants to ask. And it's a fractional percentage of his follower base. Um, and you said, what you'll get for that is a bunch of behind the scenes stuff of me at home. I'll give you a call every day for five minutes, blah, blah, blah. He would sell it would sell like hotcakes, right? And so that concept, even at different levels and scales, is absolutely scalable to people of all different levels and tiers. And I think it's it's got plenty of legs behind it as we've seen the athlete brand and the power of the athlete grow and grow and audiences grow around the athlete themselves. This type of thing makes so, so much sense. Yeah. I think it's about access and controlling controlling the message. Although the, the last thing I'll say on, on this is, I guess in theory, is nothing to stop another platform with that audience to offering something similar. Um, without the necessary about you know I mean, I mean obviously we're seeing what's happening at twitter now you could have a premium feed for example um or same with the same with instagram whether people are willing to pay i don't know um because there's no real history of people willing to pay anything other than blue ticks so yeah i, I think there's definitely appeal to that how it happens in in practice there's there's not really a, a reference case we, we can we can point to you mentioned like otro there's a reason why we perhaps haven't had a sport specific social network just yet 
Yeah, well, sports-specific social media network makes me a little bit nervous just uh, thinking about what tends to happen when uh, results don't go people's way. So maybe it's best we don't uh, we ha- don't have a sports-specific uh, social media, to be honest. <laughs> Chris, stay off Twitter. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Well, Steve, I thank you for joining us as our special guest for this episode of the Sports Pro Stream Time podcast. You know, we just went through about 10 different sessions. I think it might have even been 11 different sessions that we saw at the OTT Summit that hopefully you guys got to t- hear some stats, uh, different features, some different insights that you wouldn't have got if you hadn't shown up to the OTT Summit. And it should be future motivation to come to the OTT USA Summit in March um, and then come back to Madrid in 2023 as well. So, Steve, Nick, unless you got anything else you want to uh, just give to the audience before we go it was a pleasure being with both of you guys Thank likewise you. chris great to have you on on steve as well of course before you go myself and nick would just like to thank you for tuning into this episode of stream time if you found the episode insightful please make sure you like and subscribe on whichever platform you listen to as a growing podcast we'd greatly appreciate your support in sharing or writing a review ultimately we want this podcast to not only entertain you but also hopefully help you navigate the digital sports landscape If you have any feedback on previous episodes or any topics and speakers you'd like to hear from in the future, please don't hesitate to reach out. You can find myself and Nick Meacham on LinkedIn or on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at SportsProChris1. Nick can be found at SportsProNick. Of course, if you want to stay fully up to date on the sports business news cycle, please make sure to visit the SportsPro Media website or sign up to one of our several newsletters to make sure you don't miss anything. Once again, thank you, and we look forward to you joining us next week on the Streamtime Podcast.